Well, hello, wherever you find yourself today, it's good to be with you, and I'm glad you're joining us, because we're starting a brand new series today called, or not called, but about the Sermon on the Mount. This is about one of the most famous messages Jesus ever delivered, and it's jam-packed with all kinds of God's heart, all kinds of things that he wants for us, uh, and, and it spans three whole chapters out of the book of Matthew. It starts at chapter five and goes all the way to the end of chapter seven. There's a lot there, and so here's the thing. It's really important as we go to, to approach Christ's words, approach his message uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount, that we come to understand two things, two really important things. And the first one is what Matthew's been doing up to this point. And the second uh, is who Jesus was speaking to, who that audience was. Because if you don't, if you miss that, the truth is you're likely to get your wires crossed, read the passage together, but miss the point. You know, years ago, I went to a school where there was a large group of Korean nationals who were, you know, students at the school. And we would have these prayer moments or these prayer times. And uh, when we'd pray, they would suggest that we would do Korean prayer. And so I experienced something for the first time, never encountered it before, never experienced it before that moment. But what it was is when we'd pray, everyone would pray out loud at the exact same time. So you go, okay, like, can I pray for you? And be like, sure. And then everybody in the room would just start praying. If you grew up like me or you grew up even around this church, you know that like, that's not quite how you were used to. So for me, this was like this crazy moment to experience that I'm so glad I did because it informed an experience I had a little later. I'm going to share with you now. It was years ago, uh, Seth and I were both still youth pastors at the time, and we were going to go do uh, hospital visits. And so I went to go with Seth on one particular hospital visit on one particular day to visit a woman who had brain trauma. She was going to have surgery because she'd taken a blow to the head. Uh, and so we show up and Seth is trying to figure out how she's doing and trying to pray for her. Her native language was Korean. And so it's hard enough at times when you have certain kinds of brain trauma to speak, much less can you imagine navigating that when it's not your first language that you're trying to then work through. And so we were having a hard time understanding what she was saying. And eventually Seth goes, you know what? We care about you and I'd love to pray for you. Is that okay? And she nods her head and says, yes. And so Seth begins to pray. And as he prays, she immediately begins to speak really loudly in Korean. And this takes Seth aback. And I start smiling because I know exactly what's happening. And if Seth had a better friend, he would have cued him in on what was happening. But I didn't. I just sat there quietly. And so Seth pauses and he looks at the woman. He goes, no, no, no. Uh, I'd like to pray for you. Is that okay? And she looks at him and says, yeah. Okay. And so he goes and he starts to pray again. And, and once again, she starts loudly speaking in Korean while Seth's praying. And, and this time Seth pauses and she continues. So Seth just gently reaches down and touches her shoulder and goes, I know I would like to pray for you. And she looks at him again and nods her head. And then Seth starts praying and she starts loudly speaking in Korean again. I'm dying on the inside through all of this moment because I'm just watching this all happen, knowing that Seth has no idea what's going on. And he just powers through, prays through the whole thing and says, amen. And eventually we go walking out of the hospital and I'm laughing to myself. And Seth goes, I don't understand what just happened. Every time I asked her if I could pray, she'd just start praying. And then I got to explain to him what Korean prayer was and what was actually happening in that room. And suddenly the moment made a lot more sense because the truth is the two of them had their wires crossed and they, they missed the point of what one another was trying to do. Because for her, think about what she was engaged in at that particular moment. 
He said, can I pray for you? And so she said, yes. And she began to approach prayer as she understood it to be, as she'd always seen it, as she'd always experienced it. And so she engaged the same thing. And yet for Seth, he grew up around here where prayer was a far more structured thing, where there was like turn-taking and listening to others and, and this whole type of deal. And consequently, they both saw the same moment, experienced the same moment, but missed each other, missed the point of that thing. I share that with you because... That same misunderstanding, that same type of moment can happen when we go to read the Sermon on the Mount. See, it's really easy to approach Matthew chapter 5 and just start reading Jesus' words, and they're good, they're powerful. It's really easy to start reading those words and to suddenly read it as though he's saying, this, are, this is a whole list of all of my new commands that I am giving you. This is a bigger rule book, a better playbook, and this is how I want you to engage each step of the way. As though he's saying, the things that you've done, step it, up, step it up a notch a little bit, do better, try harder, make this happen. Like, here's a whole higher ethic that you now need to do here. Try this. Like, you, you thought it was here, it's way up here. Go. And it's easy to read the words that way, but the truth is there's something different that's actually going on when we read the Sermon on the Mount. It's far more beautiful. It's far more powerful. And it is important for me, for you who are here today. So let's look at what Matthew has been saying up to this point. Remember, we needed to wrap our heads around that. Chapters one through four. So chapter one. Matthew opens his gospel, he's the writer, opens his gospel with a genealogy where he connects Jesus Christ to two different key people. The first is Abraham. And he does this because God promised that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the whole world. And so he connects him to Abraham as if to say, and with the birth of Jesus, the whole world is coming to be blessed just as God had promised to Abraham. Second person he connects him to though is David a famous king from the history of Israel. And he does this to show that Jesus was in the bloodline of David, as if to say what Matthew's really getting at is that a king has been born and a new kingdom is about to begin. And then he details the birth of Christ. We get to chapter two, and what we realize is that Christ's kingdom isn't gonna be the only kingdom that's established already on this earth. There are other kings, there are other kingdoms. One king, his name is Herod. While some, pe king, while some people gathered around excited about Christ and his kingdom and all that would come to pass someday, one king, his name was Herod, sought to kill him and tried to hunt him down. And it's because this king, his kingdom operated a little differently. It was a kingdom ruled by power and force. It was a kingdom where you eliminated all threats and rule by dominance and he wanted to erase Christ so that he would erase his future kingdom so that he'd pose no threat. And yet Christ lives. We get to chapter three, and Jesus introduces us to a guy. He's a famous teacher, leader at the time at a mass, a large following of people. His name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had one profound message that he was communicating, and it was the word repent. Now, when we hear that word, what we often tend to think is that that means confess and feel guilty. But the word repent means change of being by way of knowing. Change your life because you've come to know something so profoundly different that you'd base your life on something else now. You'd step into it. It's like an about face because of what you now know to be truly true within you. This is the word repent. And John says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's in your midst. It's at hand. And it's exactly at that moment that Jesus steps onto the scene and John baptizes him and begins the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, the formally. And at that point, we go to chapter four, the spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he's then tempted by the devil. The climactic moment where Jesus is being tempted by the devil is when the devil takes Jesus up on a mountaintop and looks out across the land and shows him all the different kingdoms of the world and says, I will give you all of these. 
if you'll worship me, if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no, because he didn't come to take the kingdoms of this world and have them. He came to be king and to start his own kingdom that would last forever, that is for all. And so that's exactly what he does. He steps out from that moment and he begins to spread the good news of that kingdom, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom is here everywhere he went. And he ministered to people who struggled, people who felt broken, people who were sick, some people who were disabled, people who were impoverished, people who thought that they were far out. And he heals and he brings peace and wholeness and goodness to them as he begins to pull these people. And these are the very people who'd be a part of his kingdom. And then we get to chapter five. And this is a really big moment in the book of Matthew. Because for four chapters, Matthew has been getting us excited, telling us that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of heaven is in our midst. And Jesus starts to proclaim that. And finally, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five, Matthew's telling us, and this is what it looks like. This kingdom, this new thing, this way that's different than all these other kingdoms, it's here, it's in our midst. And this is what it looks like. And he spends three chapters talking about it. Jesus, when he goes to deliver this sermon, he takes the large people who'd been coming from far and wide to understand who he was and to be a part of this kingdom. He takes them up a mountainside and while they're on the slope before him, he begins to speak. Those who were broken, those who were sick, those who had been healed, those who had felt far off, far and wide gathered before him. This is the audience that he's speaking to as they seek to understand what it is to be a part of this kingdom. And these are the first words he speaks. Matthew chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These are his opening words. Think about this for just a moment. Imagine that you're on that hillside. Imagine that you're one of those people that have gathered amongst all those that he has pulled near, all those who've come from far and wide to hear those. Here's what Jesus isn't doing at that particular moment. He's not saying, you know what? You need to go out and be poor in spirit. Go try to be poor in spirit so that you can be blessed. He's not saying go out and make sure that you try to be meek so that you can receive blessing. It's not a new challenge to go out and experience some kind of tragedy so that you'd experience the depth of mourning so that Jesus can then say, and that's how a blessing looks like. He's actually having a conversation with the very people in front of him who know what it is to be poor in spirit, who know what it is to be the meek, who know what it is to have grieved and felt those things, who know what it is to experience the whole list of what he walks through in this particular moment. This is who he's speaking to. And what he's telling them is there is blessing for you that you, even in this moment, all people everywhere, this isn't just a narrow kingdom, but a kingdom that is for all far and wide, that there is blessing to be had, even for you, even here, even still. He looks at this group of people that formerly had experienced this so differently. Because you see, this was a big deal for him to say that. Verse 13, he looks at this group of people and he says, you are the light of the world. Do you know how easy it would have been for them to go, no, I'm not. 
the light of the world's in Jerusalem. It's the temple. That's where the Holy of Holies is. That's like where the fullness of the presence of God actually dwells. That's the light of the world. I'm on a mountainside listening to you. But he doesn't. He says, you are the light of the world. You are blessed. The kingdom of God is for you and will flow through you. This is a really powerful thing that would have been so easy for them to miss. Because they'd grown up hearing that if you were poor in spirit, it's because you were a sinner who's being punished. And this was God's way of taking that out on you. This was your consequence. If you were sick and you were impoverished or you were on the fringes or you were on the outside, it's because either you had done something wrong or somebody around you did something wrong because God must be imposing some kind of consequence on you. You're getting what you deserve until that time is done. And yet Jesus says to those of you who are far off, my desire is not to punish you, but to draw you near. To those of you who are poor in spirit, blessing is there for you, for you are loved and known and called near as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's a powerful moment. It's like heaven drawn near. This is what the kingdom of God is, friends. For all who sat and listened that day. Can you imagine how powerful that was? I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to hear those words? But also... Can you imagine how easy it would have been to dismiss them because of all they'd already experienced in their life? Because of what they already knew of religion and of God? Because of what they already knew of kings and kingdoms and how things work? To just simply hear that and go, nah, no. Or, or to hear his words and interpret them and see them so differently than they actually were simply because of what they had known already. See, friends, I share that with us today and I address all of this here this morning because that is my concern here today with us. That's what I care about here with us, myself, you, all of us. See, as we continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, both today and in the weeks to come, I'm excited because there's this kind of beauty that flows through these passages, that flows through this message that empowers our life, that speaks of heart and blessing and the love of God. But I'm also a little bit concerned in that it's so easy for us to miss it or to dismiss it. Because sometimes we're so used to seeing life through the lens of some other kingdom that at times it can be actually hard to wrestle with what Jesus is speaking to when he's talking about the kingdom of God. And I don't want us to miss it, both because of the season that we're in right now. There's a part where if, man, if there was a need to experience the kingdom of heaven here and now, it seems like now more than ever for many of us. It seems like that is needed, but it's not just that it's needed as a ministry unto us. It is a precious gift that is meant to flow to the world around us. As the church, I don't want us to miss it. And so I want to use the rest of our morning to point to two things, to make two acknowledgments that if we can acknowledge these things, we might, we might take a step forward in seeing the kingdom of God. If we can acknowledge these things, it might be the first step we need into actually seeing the heart of Christ and seeing his words in a different light here this morning. So I'm going to use our time to walk us through those. And here is the first. I don't want you to miss it. It's this. Seeing your world through the eyes of another kingdom can prevent you from seeing the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. Seeing your world through the eyes of another kingdom can prevent you from seeing the kingdom of God. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus took the people up a mountain before he delivered his message. In the same way that I don't think it's any coincidence that Satan took Jesus up to a tall mountain to show him all the kingdoms of this earth and offer those things to him. 
See, when you want somebody to see something new, when you want somebody to embrace something different, to accept something different than what they've come to understand or how they've known things before, sometimes you have to pull them out of the norm that they are in in order for them to see it. Sometimes you have to step out of that thing because you're, you're on autopilot. It's so easy for you to operate that way that you've got to see something different here. I mean, think about the history of the Jews. When God wanted to establish a new relationship with his people, he didn't do so in the midst of Egypt while they were slaves. No, what did he do? He liberated them, freed them, led them across the desert. And when they were out in the middle of nowhere in a place they'd never lived before, he establishes a new relationship with them and gives his laws and his commandments and the ways that they're now to operate with one another. Sometimes brand new, stepping out of the context that they were in. So now all of these people who gather on a hillside over Galilee are hearing this message about what the kingdom looks like. And Jesus didn't deliver it in the synagogue, even though that's where you would have gone to hear a religious leader speak. That's the normal place where you go to hear that message. He didn't deliver his message in the city square, even though that's where you'd go to get the most people to kind of hear the thing that you were doing. That's where everyone is. He took them up a mountainside, spanning out over all that God has created to say, there's a new kind of kingdom and I want you to see it. I don't want you to miss it here today. You know, this might ruffle a few feathers here this morning, but I like to tell people, one of the things that I, I come to, I, I think about it this way, is that if you want to know what kind of king someone will be, all you have to do is just observe them driving their car. It is just observe them while they're driving. Because think about this, when we get into the driver's seat of our own vehicle, into the driver's seat of our car, it's one of the few times in our lives where we like normal, common, non-royalty types of people suddenly are the full kings and queens of a certain dominion surrounded by four castle walls made of steel, right? And we have absolute authority in that. We determine where we will go, how fast we will get there, speed limit or not, which route we will take, and how that whole thing's gonna look. And we don't want anyone else telling us what to do in that particular moment. Our rule is absolute. And that is why we name call those people as backseat drivers and affectionately ask them to sit and be quiet in the passenger seat because we are the kings and queens of this vehicle and this is our kingdom. How dare you question our authority, right? When we do this particular thing, this is our kingdom and we get to determine what is what. The thing that I find particularly fascinating about this is the way we act, behave, perceive ourselves, the way we live our kingdom, the way we operate in our kingdom when someone else's kingdom makes its way into ours. When someone else suddenly merges into your lane in traffic, when someone else suddenly catch, cuts you off, they're operating in their kingdom and suddenly it is impacting and affecting yours. We might be peacefully driving along. Somebody suddenly cuts into our lane and that causes us to do something very small. It causes us to take our, our foot and move it about, I don't know, six to eight inch total movement from the, the gas pedal to the brake for just a sec, ex exerting very little human effort. But the response that we then give that is, oh, right? Are you kidding me? And then we'll make a comment about that person's intelligence and their reasons and motives behind exactly what it is they're doing. Then we assert our rule, we assert our authority by trying to hold them accountable to this. And what do we do? Oh no, they're going to know. So we either start honking, waving our arms, and then we hold them to certain consequences. We get as close to their bumper as we possibly can, and we try to maintain that for a long period of time so that they can be as uncomfortable as possible. Or maybe you're the person that simply drives alongside them, maintains common speed, and makes awkward eye contact so that they will come to know just how bad they are. 
and you're enforcing the consequences of those things so that they shall never do that again. After all, you're the king of that kingdom and that's how you saw it. That's how you experience it. Your actions are thus justified, right? It's easy to see it that way. But what would happen, friends? What would happen if for just a moment we suddenly found ourselves transported out of the driver's seat of our vehicle and into the passenger seat of theirs and we just got to observe? What would we suddenly come to see very, very differently? I mean, do you really think that if you landed in their car, you'd suddenly find yourself going, like encountering the driver, looking, going like, ha ha, I'm going to mess with their cruise control because I don't care about anybody and I'm a terrible person. You wouldn't. That's not a thing. At least not usually. Do you really think that you're going to find somebody in there just like wondering how they got opposable thumbs, struggling with numbers and stuff? Who are just like, I don't know, I just went another lane. I don't even know where I am. No. More often than not, what you will find is that it's a person just like me, just like you, who simply had some place they needed to be, were trying to get over, and oftentimes didn't see the opening the way that they had hoped for, but knew they needed to get somewhere and merged over anyway. Or you were in their blind spot and they made a mistake just like me, just like you often do. See, it's very different when you step out of your kingdom for just a moment. More often than not, you'll find that there's a new sort of understanding about whatever it is you think you saw. Friends, this isn't just an illustration about driving. When it comes to the kingdom of God, each of us each day are living our lives like we're driving the vehicles that is the kingdom that is our life around. What would happen if we were to step away from the kingdom we have been living in so that we could see the kingdom of God for just a moment? What would happen if we took ourselves out of the driver's seat of our own and we just sat in the passenger seat of his and took a good look around through the windows around us and we saw things through his lens, through his eyes, through his heart, through his perspective? How powerful would that be? This is what Christ is wanting people to do when he's in the midst of this passage. This is what the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is trying to unfold. It's like, look, this is going to break your brain. This is a different way of looking at it. It's an entirely different vehicle to ride in. But it's your life, and there's blessing in it. And man, I want this for you. It's powerful. You know, for you, maybe you've been living currently where all you see is a pandemic-driven kingdom around you. And that's it. It is the kingdom. It's how your kingdom has come to be. It's what your life has come to look like. It's the one you're living in. For you, maybe each day is about statistics and preventative measures and avoiding illness. And you've come to just see the people around you as a potential threat to you. And you're operating your life out of a lens of all that is now limited because of all that COVID has become and what it is. And then that's all there is for you. I think if you were on a hillside below Beneath Christ as he's speaking out over you, I think he would look at you and I think he would say, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Not to say your problems don't matter. I think he would be saying blessed are you as if to say amidst the circumstances and difficulties that you so honestly face around you, you are absolutely loved and cared for by the God of the universe, anchored and secure in his heart, in his arms, in his stead. And that when you struggle or when you mess up, that you don't lose his favor, but that you have it still and that your life has purpose and power and value. And then he actually wants to continue loving you to bless others so that blessing becomes blessing, becomes blessing as the kingdom of God is made known in you, through you, and around you. It's for you. Blessed are you. Which kingdom will you choose? Which kingdom will you see? 
You know, maybe for you, you've been living in a world where the only kingdom you see is political or sociopolitical. For you, each moment is about liberals versus conservatives. And each day is about overcoming the threat that an opposing view poses on you as though there's this immediate loss of your inherent values and the things you hold most dear and everything's at threat and everything's at stake all the time. Maybe for you, you've come to look at people around you as either with you or against you, as either friend or foe. And we've lost lose sight, lost sight of the fact that they're made in the image of God, reflections of the very beauty of the one whom you hold dear. And yet it's what you see and it's how you navigate this. I think if you were on the hillside in front of Christ, you would say, and blessed are you, even here, even still. For in him, this kingdom that we're speaking of, there is a kingdom that is above and beyond the forces of any political party. There is a kingdom that is composed of every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is a reflection of the love of Christ being poured out on everyone as it makes its way forward. And that this kingdom is not thwarted by one leader to the next, nor is, it, nor is God that God so small that his plans are undone simply by the changing of the tides. But it transcends all, is bigger than all, and holds you even still. There is peace and there is goodness to be had. For the kingdom of God is in our midst. Blessed are you, even here, even still. What would happen, friends, if for just a moment we stepped out of the driver's seat of this kingdom that we've been operating in and we just jumped into the passenger seat, like I said, with Jesus driving and just simply chose to see the world as he sees it through that windshield? What would be different? What would, how would we be different how would that inform our lives in a different way? What if, friends, there really is a good and benevolent God who seeks to pour out love and grace upon you and your life even still, even here, even now? Which brings me to the second thing that we need to acknowledge here this morning because I don't want us to miss what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this. If you want to see something you didn't see before, then you have to accept that there might be something that you're missing. If you want to see something that you didn't see before, another way to put that, or that you aren't seeing right now, you have to accept that there might be something that you're missing. Time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, used the same, Jesus uses the same grammatical expression. He uses it over and over again. Like, where's the thing out as he goes through this message? And it's this. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You'll, you'll see it. It just starts to follow as you read through this. He says it again and again. Think of it, Matthew chapter five, here's an example, verse 43, it says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He uses this grammatical device again and again. Why? Like, why is he doing this? Why does he keep saying that? Like, we get the point the first time, we got the point the second time, surely the third, but he keeps going. Why? It's because it's so easy for us to operate in autopilot like what we see is simply how it is. And he's saying, you've heard it said, as if to say, this is how you've come to see things, how you have learned things, how you know things, and how you understand things. And yet, I say to you, and yet I want to show you something different, something new, something deeper, something more. Right? And he uses this again and again. You see, if you don't accept that you might be missing something, you can't expect to see something new. You won't even be looking for it. I chronically am unable to find things in my refrigerator. 
I am. I'm the worst. This happens all the time. I bet you it's like a daily occurrence for me. My wife's at home. I promise like her neck hurts. She's nodding so hard right now uh, about this truth. I have the hardest time finding things in my refrigerator. And so what'll happen here, and it blows my mind that this happens as frequently as it does, because it should be pretty easy to find these things. It's not that big a space. And there's not that much stuff that's in there. This isn't like when somebody says, oh, I lost a piece of jewelry out on the field out, and we have to go like hunt the thing with the metal. No, it's a tiny refrigerator with just a few things that are in it. And yet this happens all the time. I will open the fridge and inevitably here's what I'll say. Amber, where did somebody like eat all the salsa? Where is that jar of salsa? Like, did it move? Amber, I'm looking for the mustard. Did somebody eat it? Did somebody throw it away? Was it, is it gone? I can't find it. And then like we do this thing on replay, my wife may as well just record this and every now and then just blast it through a speaker so she can use less effort. She'll look at me and she'll go, no, Ryan, it's in there. You just have to look. And here's the crazy part. I will. I will actually look. Sometimes I will look for a really long time. Sometimes I'll even start looking so hard that I start taking everything out of the fridge, like I'm now excavating this new piece of property, trying to find the hidden gems that I'm missing within it. I, I look at like high and low, and I will miss it. And then inevitably in that moment, my wife will come walking up, seeing this whole thing, because what happens is I start to get frustrated, and I move from looking for the thing to accusing everybody of taking the thing, hiding the thing, using the thing, not having it. I start like, who did this? right? And then she walks up and she's like, it's right here. And nine times out of 10, it is on the shelf right in front of my face. And I just did not see it, which is frustrating for all of us. This happens to me. It blows my mind that this happens. I, I thought about it though. Let me clue you in on what I think is actually happening to me when this moment occurs, what I've come to realize over time. See, the reason that I can't find things in my fridge or in my pantry is because I think I know where they're supposed to be already and they're not there. So I go to look for the thing in the place that I think it's supposed to be and it's not there. And then I go to look around where maybe it would have been, but because of what I think it ought to be, because of the way I naturally see things, it can be on the shelf right in front of me and I gloss over it. It's like I'm blind to it because my mind, my brain, it's all closed off to it, which is why my wife can walk up with my foot, of, like my face, a foot away from the thing and be like, right here. And I've missed it. It's right there in front of my face on the shelf in front of me. And I missed it. Friends, if I can miss a jar of mustard sitting on a shelf a foot from my face, well, then how much more do we, when we talk about the kingdom of God, how much more, how much easier is it for us to misplace, to dismiss, to overlook, to simply not see the beautiful things that Christ is talking about when it comes to the kingdom of God, available to us and flowing through our very lives. This is a really big deal because on the other end is a gift to us because in the kingdom of God, as life lived as Christ created us to live it in all of its fullness and all of its beauty grounded in love and it empowers our life and it fills us with a kind of purpose and hope and goodness and anchors us in the very heart of who God is. It's a powerful kind of security. It's a powerful kind of understanding and it's a powerful kind of purpose as we then go to live our lives in that kingdom and be a living, breathing kingdom giver, right? To everyone around us that it might compound and grow. 
We can miss things. Christ said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you're used to seeing about seeing about and thinking about it this way. And yet, what if Christ wants to show you something deeper, something more, something truer? You've heard it said that we are to love our neighbor and hate liberals and, or hate conservatives, right? But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who are against you. That's like a world flips upside down right now, is it not? That's like a, an ability to attach my heart to something that before it was cut off from. That's the heart of God, not just for some people, but for all people flowing in me and through me and around me. It's for you. It's for me. Friends, what if the person God wants you to love most right now in your life is sitting on the shelf in front of you and you haven't seen it because you're looking everywhere else? I mean, think about this. We're not talking about life as we always live it. We're not talking about some other kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of God. What if the person that God most wants you to love in your life right now is actually sitting right there on the shelf in front of you and you miss it because you think that it's supposed to be over here or it's supposed to be over here and so you just miss that thing that's a foot away from you right now? What would that be like? Or what about this? If you're currently only looking for a church to hold in-person services and to make sure that things happen the way that did before COVID, it's an honest care and it's an honest desire, but what if, because that's what it must be, you miss the church that is actually here right in front of you right now, that you're a part of the body of Christ that you are a part of that needs your love and your goodness to flow into the community and life around you during this season of time because you carry the kingdom wherever you go. The church is not a place, but a people gathered. You are, it's alive in you right here and right now, wherever you might be. Friends, in your own lives, if you aren't seeing the kingdom of God alive and real in your life right now, then that means that either this whole thing is a sham and we're just deceived on something and we should, you know, abandon ship, or it means that there's something you're not yet seeing. You know, during these moments where it's hard to see something, the idea of what if can become a really powerful resource to make our way back. So I want to ask a series of what if questions to each of us here this morning that it might open us up to see our world, the world through the kingdom of God. And it's this, friends, what if God is still loving the world forward? What if he's loving your city, your state, your nation, and more than just your nation, the entire great big world, the entire universe? What if God is still loving the world forward? And what if that God is also currently and fervently pouring that love and compassion that he endlessly has upon you, wherever you might be, right here and right now? And that he's still pouring that out. What if, because you are secure in his love, because you are fueled by his kindness, and because you are made in his image and reflect his incredible beauty, what if there is goodness and there is blessing for you to experience in your life right here and right now, even still, even amidst difficult circumstances, friends, even amidst struggle and hardship and unknowns and that which we cannot control? Friends, what if the kingdom of God isn't a fairy tale that was simply spoken above, spoken about on a hillside over Galilee 2,000 years ago, but is actually as alive as it ever has been, as alive as Christ who is within you? May the kingdom of God be that alive around you. 
for it's here in our midst, even still. Each moment, here's the truth, each moment, each day, each conversation, each conflict, each car ride, each journey is an opportunity for each of us to choose which kingdom we will see and which kingdom we will live in and which kingdom we will bring to the world around us. And so I ask you, what will you choose? Friends, may you see it. May you experience it. May it bring joy to your life in the here and now. And I want to close this message this morning with a prayer that is the prayer Christ prays in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to use his words to end this message. And so it's this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Hope to see you soon.